First off, really glad to see you guys. Overall, before we start, um, I just think that we are selling ourselves way too short. If we serve a mighty God, if we believe every single thing that is in this book, then we are doing a poor, poor job of walking it out and walking in the power that God has for us. I think that too often that we come with God with, with such low expectations. I even was convicted about that in like my prayer life. You know how like you can pray and like, God, heal them, but if you don't, then that would be totally okay too. You know, you kind of give like this like wide interpretation for God to either show up or not show up. And I think that we come to God when it comes to transformational change with such a small idea. And I look around like a big church like Capitol. I look around areas all around the country and, and, and through every major city, and I meet Christians, and I feel like I'm meeting warm corpses. You think, why is there so much death in the church? Why is there so many people who profess that Christ is a living God inside them, but yet they walk around as if their life is horrible, is over? Why is that? Why, why do we see so many people walking away from the church? If God is really who he is, he says he is. And if these promises are really real, then why do we see all this going on? I think tonight is what I want to do is I want to investigate a model that God has set up, not only for eternal impact on us, but upon the community and surroundings around us. And I think the one thing that God asks is that we would come expecting that to happen. Because we come and we, we don't anticipate it. We automatically set ourselves up for failure. We think that God's not going to do it, and so I think that God tonight would have us to learn from his word about what transformation is impacting us, those around us, and ultimately the globe. And so that is where we go tonight. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask God for your spirit to be here. Lord, we just desire your presence to be here in this room. And Lord, as we open up the scriptures, would you just allow us to see your truth. Lord, we just pray that every word, God, that we read, every thought, everything that we come across tonight, Lord, would just be from you. God, I pray that we wouldn't water down, God, what you have for us. I pray that we wouldn't twist and contort things to be convenient for our lives, but Lord, that you would help us to embrace the fullness of truth and that you, Lord, would set us free. I pray that this place, we would be set free to the new purpose and desires for our relationships and our relationship with you, Lord. Would you help us tonight? As we open your word, Lord, we just ask that you would show up and just inhabit this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. If you happen to have a Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 6. We have almost completed our study through Galatians. And we're not going to get too far tonight, but we're going to get pretty dang close. So Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Gesundheit. God bless you, I guess. And there's also Bibles on the table. If you don't own a Bible and you want a Bible, you can take that one. Um, We have lots of them, and so if you desire that, then just go ahead and take it. We give you permission. Holy stealing, right? So, all right. Galatians 6, we're going to read 1 through verse 6. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. 
If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Thanks. Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. For we are each responsible for our own conduct. Those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things for them. All right, so tonight we're going to mostly focus on the first three verses. That's what tonight's essentially going to be around. And it starts off that if another believer or another person is overcome by sin. So we can take a look at where we are right now. We can say, if another person, not assuming ourselves. The good news and bad news is that if it's not you today being that guy, that girl, that'll be you tomorrow. That's the hard reality of it. If you are not this person who has fallen into sin and has been distracted by sin, if that is not you today, that is going to be you tomorrow. We need to fully understand that we live in a culture in a way, and our, our walk with God is not stasis. It is not a level. It ebbs and flows, and we have things that come to us, and we are enticed into different things. And so a lot of times as we go through life, we encounter temptations and we fall. As much as we read the Bible, as much as we pray, that is inevitably going to happen. So as you look at that, it says another person That could be you today, but that definitely will be you, if not tomorrow, then the next day. That's just a fact of the matter. And then it says, you who are godly. I like this one because I've always read this one, and I've always thought of other people. You know, you like, you're like, those who are godly. It's like, oh yeah, so, you know, I can come off with these things. and, And these people, and it says, should gently and humbly help that person back on the right path. I think it's a lot easier for us to assume that this is somebody else. This isn't us. Godly, no. Jesus believer? Oh yeah, godly no. But the Greek here actually says spiritual. And spiritual is spirit-filled. Now we have a little bit wider interpretation of what that means. That means that if we have asked Jesus into our heart and asked the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, that the Spirit dwells within us. So if we read this over again, it says, if anyone, and if it's not you today, is overcome by sin, you who have the Holy Spirit should gently and humbly help that person back. That's bad news for us because we don't get to blame it on somebody else. We don't get to put it on some other leader or some teacher or some counselor. Bummer. Because now we're accountable. If we say that we have God in us, now we're accountable as we see someone who's wandered into temptation. And then it says, share each other's burdens, and in this way you obey the law of Christ. Share each other's burdens. That doesn't sound very convenient, first off. And this you fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what's the law of Christ? Two things, right? Love who? Love God. With all your heart, mind, soul, strength, spirit, trio, dog, whatever. Everything. It's all his. You love him unconditionally and completely. And the second one is what? Love who? People. I forget who. Someone, I know a buddy who has a tattoo that says, love God, love people on both forearms. It's Raul. It's tough. I'm such a wimp. I wish I could do that. And so it says, this fulfills the law of Christ. So sharing each other's burdens, this is fulfilling the law of Christ. Well, why don't we like look at a, another example of this? Why don't you flip back to the, the book of Mark. Mark chapter 6. And we'll see how this plays out. Mark 6, verse 30. I'll give you a second to get there. 
If you don't have it, we might have it on the screens. Mark 6, verse 30, and we're going to read four verses. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, Let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. One of the biggest and easiest ways that you can line up your heart with God's heart is you find verses like this, and when you you find areas where it says, Jesus had compassion for them. We should highlight, underline, bold, copy, paste, all that stuff. We should take notice of these things. If we want our our hearts to align with Jesus, then when we run across these verses, we should take notice. It says, he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is a dangerous prayer to pray. If you desire to have a meaningful and fulfilling relationship with, with Christ, here's a prayer that you can pray. It's dangerous. Ask God, God, would you break my heart for the things that break your heart? If you're willing to be that authentic with God and ask him to reveal your heart and your eyes and your mind and things that breaks his heart, you will be wildly surprised. And so as we read this, we see that Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We're going to come back to this. If we look back in, in Galatians where we left off, we said, okay, any person who's overcome by sin, that's you or me, those who are godly, still you or me, just depends on where we're at, is to help, what? Gently restore someone. It says gently and humbly restore them. I'm going to flip back. It says, anyone who's overcome by sin, you who are godly, should gently and humbly help that person back. Why humbly? Humbly because, remember, if you're not that guy today, you might be that guy tomorrow. Humbly is because when someone else is doing that for you, you don't look like a total jerk. Right? If, if the biblical model is that someone would help you come back and come along, then we better be humble about how we help other people. Christians have a phenomenal reputation of shooting their wounded. Someone messes up and boom! Let's gossip, let's cast them out, let's do whatever. Happens all the time. That's not what Jesus wants. And so it's a very intentional here that he says, gently, meaning, you know, don't be throwing books and, and gossiping and do these different things and saying you're going to hell and all these different crazy horrible things we could do. It says, gently and humbly help them back. Now, the word there, help, this is interesting. This is a Greek word, and it's not just any, like, get back here. The Greek word, and I'm going to butcher it here, but it's, it's katartizo, if that's right. Some scholar is going to roll over. But essentially, yeah, essentially what it means, this is just not like someone, you know, that has been misplaced, like put something back where it was. It's talking about bringing someone back. And so this word is very specific because it's referring to, to a part of a body that's been amputated. 
and referring to that this part would be restored. Not that it just would be put back in its place or that, you know, restock the shelves. It's that something that belonged somewhere, went missing, was gone and needs to be restored back. There is no other place for it. That is the word there where it says, for the restoring to help. What we see here, and we see God have compassion for these people without a shepherd, without a leader, is we see now that God is fighting for our hearts. God is fighting for the hearts of these people. Why? Because they're lost without a shepherd. They have gone away. Now let's look at why it refers to that body imagery. Many of you guys know this. This is found in 1 Corinthians 12, and it says that we are a body. The hand, the foot, the eye. You might be the the hand. You might be the ear. You might be the nose. Should an eye say, because I'm not a hand that I don't, you know, I'm, it, the, the whole entire imagery around who we are is around a human body. That there are many parts, but there's one body. That is the imagery throughout the Bible when referring to you and I. Is that we are all one piece. And so it's no coincidence that here in the scriptures it talks about one person falling into sin. That we would go and help restore them. Why? Is because when they fall, we fall. We are all part of one body all hurting together. And when one person hurts, all of us hurt. And so Paul is begging and pleading us to fight for the hearts of others so that they would be restored to us, that we would be whole. That is God's design. And so we see Jesus here in the boat in Mark, looking, seeing all these people, and his heart has compassion. Why? It's because all these people are coming after him, and he says, they're just one of me. And they're without a shepherd, and his heart bleeds. People thirsty, craving, desiring a relationship that would fight after their hearts. That is what those people were doing. They were going to him, not because he was going to heal them, but because God's heart is one that fights for our hearts. So as we look at restoring people in in gentleness, as we look at this battle where we're going to be challenged through sin and temptation— is that we need to have the right heart with it. It says, what leads people to repentance in the Bible? It says, God's kindness leads people to repentance. It's not God's judgment. It's not God's definition of hell. It's God's kindness that brings people back to his heart. It's his kindness. That is what fights for the hearts of man. This, my friends, this is what we call discipleship. This, pure and simple, is discipleship. God's heart after the hearts of his people to restore them back to fullness, to health, to, to oneness, to unity. All one body together, several parts. No part is more important than the other part. That's God's heart that he would see us all come together. So when one of us goes astray, all of us need to be concerned. That's God's design. That's his purpose. That is truth. Discipleship is pure and simple. The building, teaching, encouraging, and restoring, pertaining to this text, of one another. And it's, it's, it's fun to talk about, hey, I'll encourage you. Hey, you know, Jesus loves you, you know. But when it comes down to it, God is a relational God. It's not that let's, let's buy billboards that say Jesus loves you. It's like, why don't we go to the streets and why don't we build relationships and spend time with somebody, talking to them, listening to them, hearing where they're at, and why don't we begin a journey that fights for the hearts of other people? Because God's heart is fighting for their heart too. 
He has compassion because they don't have a shepherd. Tonight, I want to look at, are we being called to be someone else's shepherd? Are we being called to be a shepherd to the lost, the brokenhearted, the Christians that have gone astray, that have fallen into sin? Is he calling you tonight to be that shepherd to lead someone? Are you that person that you're broken, you need restoration, and you're waiting for a shepherd? Is that you tonight? That's our community. I'd say far more of us are in the broken area. Far more. And God's design is to be something higher. But I think the problem is, is that we have such an absence of biblical discipleship in our lives, in our church, everywhere. The real, pure, biblical discipleship is just not easily found. And I think that is why that we see so many Christian corpses around. You see these people that have, at one point in time, maybe they raised their hand at a church service, and so now they're a Christian, so I say, you know. I guess I am, you know. They give a shoulder shrug. But they spend the rest of their life trying to figure this out, but they have no shepherd. And so they walk around a warm corpse waiting to be buried. I think that is the sad truth of where our community, our church, our country, the Christian church is. The majority of us are just waiting to be put in the ground because we're not walking out the biblical discipleship principles that God has laid here. Jesus, before he left, he said, go and what? Go and make disciples. When he was leaving, he was like, I'm off, so um, I'll be back. But while I'm gone, go and make disciples. He commands it. Go do it. And we look at that and we're like, oh yeah, that's great. But we look around and is there a lot of it going on? I don't know. I think not. I can't imagine there'd be all this discipleship going on, but yet see so much death. People who are just not walking where God has for them. I really, truly believe that there is no such thing as a former Christian. I don't believe there's such a thing as someone who's come to Christ and someone who's fallen away. I only think that there are believers still waiting to be restored. I don't think that you can encounter God in a radical, real way and fall away from it. I just think that you're on deck waiting for someone to come fight for your heart. Someone to fight to have you restored back to the body, the place that you belong. Or maybe there's another way of saying it is that there's no such thing as former Christians. There's only Christians that are too selfish to get uncomfortable with others around them who have fallen. Maybe that's it. Maybe we look across the room and we look across the sanctuaries all over and we see all these people that are so timid with fear. They know their friends are blowing it. They know they need help, but they just don't want to do the conversation. They just don't want to bring it up. They don't want to be awkward or that guy. I didn't want to be that guy for a lot of my life. I was reserved in how I pursued God because I didn't want to be a weirdo. Lame. I don't know if I'm weird now, but I don't feel like I am. But at least now I feel that God has done work in me where I feel like I'm living the life I should be living. And it's exciting. Anybody who knows me knows I'm like the eternal optimist. We can do anything, you know. It's like, we can just do it. <laughs> That's me. And I, I, I see that, that we should all, when we have the fullness, knowing that God is behind us, paving the way for us. We cannot go wrong. But we act out of fear. I also believe that there's no such thing as lukewarm Christians. Only Christians 
who don't want to be challenged in their faith. There's only Christians who don't want to be challenged in their faith. I think that is the lukewarm, in neutral, coasting Christian. If that's you, get off your duff. What are you doing? Are you, are you progressing? Are you striving? Are you desiring to know this book more? Are you desiring to know the heart of God more? I think that what's been interesting is that learning more about just life and people and hearing people's stories is that we're all very ordinary people. I don't think that there's anything that's wildly, you know, crazy. And, and, and being the eternal optimist, I, I think that I see the potential in all these different people. But I think probably in a generality that people are not living on the peak of success, but they are really at the edge of failure in their lives. That most people don't feel that I am on the edge of amazing breakthrough. I think that if we're really honest with ourselves, that maybe a lot of us feel like we're just barely holding it together. Maybe that not all of us or few of us are on the pinnacle of triumph, but many and most of us are at the precipice of defeat. I think that is the honest look. Being the eternal optimist, I think that is probably more accurate. So what do we do with that? It's twofold. It's we need to disciple others. We need to be a community that fights for the hearts of people around us. We need to fight and petition those who do not have the strength to fight for their own hearts. That is what Jesus was doing. He's with his disciples. He poured into 12 people and all these people, and he changed the world. Why? Because he petitioned the hearts of man. Before we can disciple others, though, is that we, I believe, need to be discipled. Let me flip back to that chapter in Mark real quick. I'll read that last sentence here. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped out from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So the imagery is that Jesus is in a boat. His heart is breaking for people. And what does he do? He begins to teach. Who was he teaching? Was he teaching the crowd? I would guess everything that he was actually teaching for the disciples' benefit. He's there with the 12 guys in the boat, and they have this crowd come after him. Is he going there because he's going to deliver a once-in-a-lifetime sermon or message to people? Or is he really looking at the 12 people he spends a life with and says, this is how it goes. I will lead you, and I'll show you how it is. I think that whole entire scripture right there is that his heart breaks for people longing and seeking God, and he shows his 12 guys how it's done. I think that is the purpose of that scripture. If we can't fight for our own hearts, how can we expect to fight for the hearts of others? If we don't have the strength to find Christ, to radically transform us, how can we go and and find others and petition their hearts for God? It starts with us. And I would say that it starts with us finding someone that is ahead of us. If, could you raise your hand real quick? If you could meet someone ahead of life than you, would you make a commitment to meet with them regularly? Can you slip a hand up? Is that you? Most of us, right? It's like all the people are like this. 
No, really. I mean, if you could find someone that would give the time to you, would you make time regularly to spend with them? Yeah. I think most of us in here. He's like, no. I mean, I, th- I think honestly, it's like, who wouldn't, right? Can I see your hands? Maybe, I don't want to embarrass you, but is anybody being discipled right now? Okay, handful. But far more of us are, are, are kind of that boat where we're like, we'd like to be discipled. We'd like to have that relationship. So I think that the, the question is, in regarding discipleship and what to expect, just to open up Proverbs. Proverbs will tell you everything about what it means to be discipled and have people pour into you. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise. Proverbs 15.22, A plan fails for lack of counsel. Proverbs 20.18, Make plans by seeking advice. These are some just quick ones out of Proverbs. You read Proverbs and you see time and time again, Here's the wise man. He does, uh, he does all this stuff and is primarily seeking others. The wise man seeks others before he seeks himself. And the fool does the complete opposite. The fool goes, guns a blazing. I'll figure it out on my own. You, you cannot open up the Bible and not see this model over and over and over again of how people seek to have a little bit of what someone would teach them. The disciples sitting there in the boat, the crowds chasing after them. And Jesus says, because I love you and I petition for your hearts, I want this to be multiplied beyond me because I'm going to go to be with my Father. So I will teach you how to do this. Jesus sets for them an example and a model for all the disciples. And it changes the world. I had an interesting week this week. I, uh, I own a, a technology licensing company. And uh, so what we do is we sell bits of technology, web technology, to companies and organizations, and they license it for monthly fees. And it's been going for about, uh, probably about 14 months or so. And so there's another company that uh, is called 37 Signals. Any web geeks would probably know who this is. But 37 Signals is very, very similar to us, not in the nature of, like, specific product, but they have a very similar business model that's licensing a web software for a monthly fee. These guys, they're 16 employees, and they do probably about $12 million a year in revenue. And I know, like, I'm in this space. I know that your only costs are people and servers. And servers are cheap. I mean, you have this business that's wildly successful. Hemorrhaging money success. I love it. And I go on their website, and I saw somewhere on their Twitter feed that they have this thing that for two hours, once a week, is that the CEO will take phone calls from customers about feedback. I was like, oh, all right. We're getting ready to launch some new things. And so I was like, what the heck? So I pulled the phone, and I I dial, and I was like, what, what could be the worst thing that happens? Busy signal. Oh, okay. Hang up. I go to the bathroom. Don't know why I need to share that. But I come back. <laughs> I come back, and I hit redial. This guy's name is Jason Freed, is the CEO. The founder, the guy who started this all, picks up. Hello, Jason speaking. <laughs> I was like looking around. No one was in the office. I was by myself. <laughs> And I was like, oh, um, uh, yeah, you know, just, I kind of mumbled out some words. And I was already, like, asking him all these questions before I even told him what my name was. And, 
And it was a total, like, buffoon moment for me. And I kind of, like, collected myself. I was like, pull it together, Eric. Okay, <clears throat> so, and I got 15 minutes to talk to him. I was like, how did you set your pricing? How did you structure how you market things? Like, if you had $10,000 to advertise, what would you spend it on? He's like, I wouldn't spend it at all on anything. I'd put it back in our customers. I'm like, that's so awesome. You know, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm drilling him for every single thing. How many people do you own? Or how many people work for you? Programmers, designers, they have only two customer service people. No salespeople. And for me, being in technology, it's like, these are all the unknowns. Same space. And then he began to ask, like, oh, what, do you, what do you do? How am I going to tell him? He's like, oh, well, you know, this would be really good for you. I'm just like, you know, I'm writing notes down, and I'm like texting. This I'm talking to the CEO of 37 Signals, and, you know, I think that this is a model for us is that that's always, well, I don't know how long that's been there, but the opportunity for us to do things like that with other people is just a phone call away. What is the worst thing that could happen by you pursuing somebody else and saying, I just want to be a fly on the wall of your life. I just want to know how you do life. I just want to know how you set your servers up or, well, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, as far as life application to be able to engage into someone else's life and to be able to ask them questions is invaluable. It's absolutely invaluable. I think that discipleship is simply leaving spiritual breadcrumbs for somebody else to follow behind you. I think that a lot of us, we think that discipleship is something that we're not equipped for. We, we're not equipped to disciple anybody else. I think the only qualification is that, that God dwells within us and he dwells in a real way. And all discipleship is, I love the little breadcrumbs analogy, is just leaving a trail for someone else to find you. Leaving hints, leaving spiritual breadcrumbs for someone else to go in and follow where you've gone and where you've been. That's all it needs to be. You don't need to get into the deep theology of the Trinity and something heavy. All you need to do is impart small, breadcrumb-sized spiritual truths to someone who wants to be where you are. Someone who is in a scenario that you once were. That is what discipleship is. So I encourage you, is we need to find someone in your life that is doing what you want to do and pursue them. Pick up the phone. Dial the number. If it hangs up or busy signal, go to the bathroom. Come back. It worked for me. I'm going to call this guy in two weeks. I'm not giving up there. It's like that information, that 15 minutes was so valuable to me because it answered all these unknowns. And he wasn't like, his attitude wasn't like, I'm not going to tell you. It was completely open. And that's what discipleship be. You shouldn't go into a relationship with somebody and expect them to be totally burdened and like, well, you'll just have to figure it out yourself. That's not the model. The model is that you get a little cheat sheet in life. I call that paying dumb tax. It's a term I coined. I, I want to copyright it somehow. But dumb tax is when you do something stupid. And stupid should hurt, right? And you're like, oh, man. Duh. So I had probably the biggest payment of dumb tax in my life about two weeks ago. Can I share this real quick? So I'm a workaholic practically, and uh, so I'm very guarded with my time. 
anybody who knows me is I'm I'm hard person to get a hold of, hard person to rope down because I'm 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 pursuing so many different things, so many different businesses, and uh, and so it's great. But the challenge is that sometimes I'll be in the office super late. I'm already starting to cringe on this. So I'm, I'm working on a project, and I have a buddy who we do the project together. And I love the guy. He has a commitment to excellence like nobody else. And commitments to excellence is a little bit of a euphemism for really, really picky. And so I decided to do this thing for him, and I'm, I'm taking a lot of time out of, like, my other client work and my other projects to, to do this thing. And so I'm late on a Tuesday night at work, in the office, it's 9.30 p.m., and I finish this thing, and I, I call him, and he's in the Bay Area doing meetings and stuff, and so I'm talking to different things, and so there's this list of different things that keep on coming up of new things I got to do. And I love his pursuing of excellence, but not when it has a direct meaning for my work. <laughs> it's like, I want to be done. I want to be complete. I'm tired. I'm cranky, and I had a total rotten attitude. I'm in the office late. I'm working on this. It should have been done. And so a buddy text messages me. What do you do in the office? So I reply back, blah, 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 blah. And I just mentioned I'm still working on this thing. Replies back, what's, you know, huh? And, uh, and so I hang up the phone, and I go back to work, and so I pick up the phone, and, and I text message him back, and this is completely out of character for me. As I light up my buddy, I'm totally just out of and a moment of temptation, in a moment of frustration, is I let my guard down and I vent. And I vent about how frustrated I am, not only with the project, but with him specifically. And I send like two messages. And then, you know, I go back. About two minutes later, I text message back from my buddy. Was that last message meant for me? Holy cow. Did I just send that blazing message to my buddy? To the wrong buddy? The buddy I was complaining about? And so, like, you know that feeling that just kind of, like, tingles over you? (laughs) And you're just like, your body temperature just goes up. You're like, oh, dear Lord, no. And so I just, I collect myself. I was like, okay, I just, I text messaged a couple of people about basketball. Maybe, maybe it was about that. So I'm sitting there. I can't focus on anything now. And then a second one falls up. Or was it about me? And then I just was so stinking screwed because I totally sent the blazing message about my buddy to my buddy, not the other one. Totally out of character. Totally not me. And in a moment, I told that just harmless. Like, I would never say those things with my mouth. But I typed him, which is even worse. There's evidence. And so I sat there, and I was totally was like, okay, I could totally lie. I could, I could totally just, you know, make it up. And I was in a moment of personal integrity where I got to decide, do I weasel out of this because I'm such a cheese ball and I can't stand up to, or do I call him and do I wear it? I called him. And I just wore it. And there just wasn't any explanation. It was like, I am such a slug. I am so horrible. It was, and I, I didn't do any rationalizing. I just I said, that's wrong. It's wrong. I'm so sorry. I don't know, like, and I, I told my buddy who was supposed to receive the message, he's like, I don't know who I feel bad for more. You or the other guy, <laughs> like, you feel bad for me more. Because it was horrible. But 
I was able to go into it and said, this is going to stink on ice, and I just need to be a man. If I'm really going to be here in front of you guys, I need to be a person of integrity. And not that that was my motivation, but I was stirred in my spirit that I was being tempted to do a bold-faced lie because it would have been the easy way out of it instead of confronting it. That is dumb tax. That is, I've, I've done things where I've lost money on a stupid mistake. This is far worse because I work with this guy. It is far worse. That is dumb tax. That is a thing where I wish someone said, don't ever, ever, oh, this is for you guys. Don't ever, 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 ever send a text message about somebody that speaks in a negative light about them. Because the Holy Spirit will probably redirect that message to that person. (laughs) I don't know how on high earth that that message got to him. But it did. That is dumb tax. Discipleship is set up for us to be free from dumb tax and pay as little as possible. I have this CEO guy, my new friend, who doesn't know I, you know, doesn't know me, but I'm going to call him anyway. And it's, it's saving me mistakes. It's saving me time and headache and hassle way ahead of time. Discipleship works. So why are we not pursuing it? Why are we not pursuing God like we could? I wonder if it's because that discipleship is going to bring real accountability to our spiritual growth. I wonder that when we enter into discipleship is that we're going to now be accountable to God and someone else, and that scares the living snot out of us. Could it be that we don't want to be reconciled to God because it will now complicate our lives? Do we not engage in discipleship because we know that's what's going to take place? Do we not want to accept forgiveness because then, if we feel forgiven— we'll have to let go of all the bitterness that we've accumulated and stewed up. Is that why we stay away from discipleship? Remember, lukewarm Christians are Christians who don't want to be challenged. Do we stay away because we don't want to feel loved? Because if we feel and accept love, we may have to open our lives to someone that we would rather keep an arm's distance to. Maybe we don't want to discover the joy of life. Maybe we don't want to discover Christ's fulfilling life because we'd really rather continue to gripe and complain about life because that's what's more comfortable. These are the things that discipleship is going to pull and tear out of us. Kierkegaard said this, and I think he's right. He says that we choose, we choose to lock the door of our hearts because we want to live in the wretched doghouses of our lives. We like our junk. We like our bitterness. We like keeping that person away. We like these different things. And so for that reason, we're going to be a little timid to any threat to disrupting our comfortability. Maybe that's why we stay away. Why don't we have the band come up? And I'm going to leave you with with this. Is I want us to have a greater expectation for God. I want us to have such a radical transformation, a wild expectation for for God and what he can do through discipleship. Now, all these different things, we talked about the fruits of discipling someone else and the benefits for us to be discipled. Spiritual breadcrumbs that we leave behind us. Now, let me paint you this picture. The first or the second question tonight was, if you had 16 million people that you could say anything to, that you could impact, what would it be? Would it be too radical? Could I tell you tonight that you in your lifetime, in the next 25 years, have an opportunity to impact over 16 million people? 
Is that wild? Is that crazy? Through discipleship, you pursuing a single one person who will disciple you for 12 months, all right? If you can do that, and then you disciple one person after that, the next 25 years, you will have an impact that is crazy. So I I said this one time before. Let's pretend that Billy Graham can save a thousand people per day. A thousand people can come to Christ per day through Billy Graham. Or you can learn to be discipled. And then you can learn to disciple somebody else. And then that person can learn to disciple somebody else and you find somebody else. If you would take 12, or sorry, if you would take 25 years and spend 12 months of each year and pour into one person, one person, you pour your life, your heart, your soul, you fight for their heart, you leave spiritual breadcrumbs for them to follow, you engage in a relationship with someone who can follow after your footprints. And at the end of those 12 months, they can do the same thing for somebody else. In 25 years, you will have impacted 16,777,216 people. If you can do that one thing, all you need to do is, is touch 25 lives. 25 lives over 25 years. Could you do that? Could the only thing that you do is you pour into someone just enough that they would pour into somebody else and then that person would do it for somebody else and the chain continues and continues and continues. If you don't believe me, I have the math right here. It doubles every year. You and one person turns into two. You two turns into four. Four, eight. Eight, sixteen. Sixteen, thirty-two. Sixty-four. One, twenty-eight. Two, fifty-six. It goes on. At the end of 25 years, it's 16 million people. Heaven forbid you do it to 30 years because that is 500 million people. You don't think that you can change a life? I don't think God is calling you to be this crazy person that solves world hunger. Maybe he is. That's awesome. But I think God tonight is asking, would you be faithful enough to get it right with somebody else and then you pass it along to somebody that you would pour your heart, your soul, not into hundreds of people, but to one person at a time? Could you be so effective after 12 months of meeting with this person that their life is radically changed? I think a lot of us like to underachieve. Even that seems like a low barrier. And all you need to do is do that year by year. Pour into one person. And if that's you, maybe two things you can pray. One, if you're in the camp that you are already able, desiring to pour into somebody else, maybe that you would be open and pursue other people and find someone that is faithful, able, and available, and teachable, that they would come alongside you. And if you're in the other camp, if you're like, I need for the first time in my life to have a relationship where someone speaks truth, speaks life, speaks the hard things that I don't maybe want to hear now, but I need to hear, maybe you pray that that person would come along. And maybe that you would find the desire and the strength to be bold and pick up that phone. What is the worst thing that could happen? A busy tone? Try a different number. I really think that this generation has the power to transform a world, has power to transform this city. The math is right here. The numbers don't lie. All we need to do is spend 25 years pouring in, and God's going to do crazy things.
seems something that each one of us can do. So as we close, why don't we stand and why don't we just ask God to do this in us. Lord God, we just come before you and God, we just look at the model that you set before us. God, that you poured diligently into 12 lost souls. God, souls that just desired to follow in your footsteps, to be covered by the dust that you would shake up with the trails that you would follow, Lord. Jesus, you transformed all of humanity by focusing into a few. And Lord, we pray, God, that you would open up opportunities for us, God, to be in that position. That you would lavish us, that you, God, would have favor on us, that there would be someone that would come to us. Lord, that we have the boldness to ask, and God, that we would have the boldness to pass it on. Even, God, with this be change event, that we would be able to even pour into a fourth grader, a fifth grader, someone in middle school, God, that someone that we could just love on. God, how the possibility for eternal impact, not in just a single life, but Lord, in millions of lives is at stake. And so, God, we just confess our low expectations that us in a one-to-one relationship can yield such a little fruit. God, forgive us for thinking that you are so small. God, forgive us for believing the lies that our efforts, our times, our experiences, our abilities mean nothing. God, you are an efficient God. You waste no resources with us. Would you allow us to desire and to seek after you, Lord? Purify our hearts. God, may we learn to know what it is to fight on our own heart's behalf. So that, Lord, that we may fight for the hearts of others around us. Would you do that tonight, Lord? I pray tonight God would be a place of restoration for us. If we are in places wandering, Lord, feeling like we are surrounded, washed by the ocean, God, not being able to discern, God, what is going on in our lives because sin has crept onto us, Lord, I pray there would be freedom tonight. I pray that there would be chains broken tonight, Lord, things that would keep us captive and keep us down. And I pray for boldness, God, that we would desire to get right with you, to have their holy and righteous heart. Lord, would you do that? God, we desire you. We desire your presence. Would your presence fill this place? Do work in us. God, we don't want to be a people that is lukewarm. We don't want to be people that just come for a cozy message and a cozy little feel-good Bible study. Lord, purify us. Would you make us refined? God, we believe you for that. We come expecting that. God, we expect for the transformations of millions and millions of people through what you do through us one life at a time, God. We thank you, God, that you've made it so evident, so clear. And God, you've set up such an awesome model. God, we are your servants. Would you do that for us? In Jesus' name.